Hello and welcome to the second episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast. We'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs and sweat the details. Half an hour, once a week. We'll try and keep this short. We're not journalists or podcasters. We're developers and computer scientists. I'm Douglas Shearer and I'm here with my co-host Ian Wallace. Hiya. Right, I'll, I'll add the time travel to the after show, so listen past the end if you want to hear that. But for now, I'll just explain this by saying we recorded a couple of episodes before we published any. Deal with it. Okay, great. I think this week we're going to have some talk about specific silicon for vision, um, some VR stuff and some other video nonsense as we could describe. But first, we've got some follow-up. Yeah, so kind of following up ourselves here, but never mind. Did you see this thing with Qualcomm doing the, the clever stuff with Tango? I had a little look at the link he posted in the, in the show notes. Because this is kind of like, I saw this and I thought it was interesting after we were talking about um, dedicated deep learning hardware and stuff like that. Because it reminded me of the thing I forgot to talk about last last time, which was Apple adding in the Gaussian pyramid stuff to uh, metal performance shaders, which very briefly is ways of calculating features and images at multiple scales. Okay. And it's a really odd thing because you can think, why would you do that? And you would do that if you were needing to do feature tracking quickly in your silicon. And you would do that for inside-out tracking, so like tracking... So inside-out tracking is where rather than have something track the phone, the phone tracks the world and it can work out its motion based on that. Okay. And this is this is how Project Tango works, right? So you've seen Project Tango, right? It's basically live 3D scanning in your phone with a couple of camera lenses sort of thing. Yep. And it's quite computa- uh, computationally intensive uh, doing that stuff. Yeah, maybe a future topic we could talk a bit about how that works. It's quite interesting. It's kind of based on uh, how Mars rovers see the world and it's actually it's pretty interesting. So suppose this is just a... This is a sign of people actually thinking that VR is going to be a big thing and actually making silicon that's specific to tasks that are useful in VR. We've got Apple Apple doing it and Qualcomm doing it. So. Ah, see, that's, that's the thing, right? It's not specific. So what Qualcomm have done, they've kind of gone, right, so you've got uh, your SOC, which is your CPU and other bits and bobs on one chip, right? System on a chip. And those other bits, you've got things like your ISP and your DSP for your image and uh, audio signal processing and things like that, yeah? Yep. And... They're just little ARM chips. It's amazing how many little ARM chips there are places. Um, like there's a there's a ARM Cortex core in the fingerprint scanner on my laptop. Okay. It's mental, like it's got a CPU in it. Yeah, so they've got all these little CPUs that are effectively dedicated to particular tasks in their SOC. And what Qualcomm have done is they've gone, well, if we only do something computationally intensive specific to the device like Tango, well, we've got all these extra CPUs. Why can't they do some of the work? So they've put, I think the ISP is doing feature extraction. They're doing tracking on the DSP and then running the few bits and bobs and tidying all up all the output on the uh, CPU. So they say they can do like the full 3D tracking from Tango with only 10% load on the CPU. Yeah, they're saying it's like less than two watts power envelope, which is quite impressive given what they're actually doing. Yeah, two watts is like high clock on a large phone or something like that. Um, like, did you see that? Yeah, Lenovo that are releasing that Tango phone shortly. It's like a seven-inch phone or something crazy. I think it's like a Fab 2 Pro, I think it's called, with Fab being spelled P-H-A-B. Yeah, oh, God. But uh, <laughs> it's quite interesting, actually. It's the sort of device that kind of strangely tempts me just because of its madness. Yeah, you, you do have a certain attraction to quite strange devices. So I use a 6S Plus now, and it feels totally normal to me, and I'm kind of wondering how big can a phone be before it's too big? Have you ever had one of the Galaxy Tabs? 
well, which one they do, I don't know, every... Oh, they do a tab seven now or something, I think's the biggest oh, one. It's basically a Fibonacci sequence of uh, <laughs> inch numbers <laughs> and then they make them all, that's Samsung strategy. I've got a seven-inch Nexus around the house. Okay. But it, it's weird how quickly, like, a five-and-a-half-inch phone... Oh, is it five? Yeah, it must be. No, sorry, 5.8-inch, is that right, for a 6S Plus? I should know this. It's something like that, yeah. It's, it's amazing how quickly that becomes normal, and I don't really notice it's a big phone until I pass someone else my phone for whatever reason, and they're like, this is enormous. Mm. Yeah, I think it's just that thing where, like, I've only got a, this, this, the 6S um, sized phone, the sort of smaller one, and that seemed massive for literally about the first day, and then after that it was just normal, and now any time I go back to any of the smaller form factors, whether it's an Apple phone or a, um, some of the Android phones I have around here for testing, like, they just seem tiny. They are so much more stunted for browsing the web, especially when the web is just regular web pages where there's not a mobile layout. Certainly the bigger devices are better. Yeah. Also, I kind of figure, like, I'm really tall, so surely I should have a bigger phone. It's just, you know, it <laughs> scales up. Yeah, that, that device intrigues me just because I wonder how big is too big. And I'm pretty certain a 7-inch phone is too big, but, you know, what if it's not? Yeah. So, yeah, all that Qualcomm stuff, super interesting. And, um... Yeah, I actually meant, this isn't a follow-up, because I meant to talk about the uh, Gaussian feature pyramid stuff before when we are talking about the uh, performance shaders and deep learning, because this is this is super interesting, because this is another hint of what Apple will be doing in the future, and phones more generally with the Qualcomm work on Android. And it's it's VR, because I said, why, why do you want to do this? And I said, well, if you want to do inside-out tracking, and why would you need inside-out tracking on a phone? Partly, it's, it's better sensing of the position of the phone, better pose recovery which maybe helps for some apps and stuff pokemon go pokemon go yeah i mean that's going to be the big thing now but um then the other reason you might want to do it is if you want a vr where you can walk around rather than just you know so i mean people might have used google cardboard and you can turn your head around and it senses which direction you're facing but you can't move there's no translation yeah don't sense that uh, because it's very hard to do that one-to-one. You can sense which direction you're moving a phone in, but uh, not by how far. You have no scale. And what the better tracking would do would give you scale, potentially. I say potentially because still with a monocular camera image, that's not enough. You need stereo. Yeah. Um, so does this this tracking with the translation support, does that allow you to do using purely vision what, say, the... HTC VR headset does with it. It's like antennas or something they call them. That you place them in the room and it uses that to track the your movement. Yeah, the lighthouse is what they lighthouse, call it. They, it's it. actually really clever how that works. We can maybe get onto that in a bit if and then uh, cut it all out of the final podcast. <laughs> it's quite interesting <laughs> though. So yeah, it basically let you walk around because uh, the big problem about the Vive is you've got this big tether running out the back of your head, which is a bit annoying. Yeah, I think wireless VR headsets are a while away, even though people are building PCs to put inside backpacks, so you're sort of free of the tether but wearing a backpack. Yeah, but I th- it kind of seems like the, the winning game for VR is probably going to be based on your phone. You just stick your phone in. And you see how... Um, so you see Qualcomm can do the, you know, 10% of your CPU to do the, you know, track and tango and... Apple, if anyone can, can put dedicated hardware in their chips. And so I said you need scale as well as tracking to get your motion. So if you if you don't have scale, you can track in 3D how you move and you can get the translation you need. But you have no idea how far. I mean, the relative distances are fine, but you need a real-world measurement to uh, scale it. Now, you can 
you can cheat in things by saying, oh, I think a person is on average this tall or you're moving this fast or whatever. Yeah. But um, what you really want is stereo cameras, a pair of cameras. Yeah. And then you kind of think, well, this is appearing in the APIs and uh, what's rumoured for the next big iPhone? So the... Uh Briefly, how does the stereo cameras allow you to do that? Is it something like it picks two points and when you move it does a calculation that works out actually how far away from it is, a sort of triangulation thing? Yes, I can't explain it more specifically than that without taking okay. a very long time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's enough. Yeah. You, you need, um, with one camera you create what you uh, shoot a load of calibration targets and you get what's known as the intrinsic parameters of the lens and that tells you how the, the camera lens distorts the world that you're okay. looking at, if that makes sense. So yep. you have you very precisely know the field of view and how things get warped towards the edges. Yep. And if you have a pair of cameras, you also calculate what's known as the extrinsics, which is for that pair of cameras, how far apart are they basically and where they point relative to each other. And then if you can match the same feature in both, you know the baseline between them, then it's uh, yeah, it's basically trig to work out uh, how far away that point is. Okay. Uh, I assume you'll put some sort of whiteboard math in the show notes and people can read that if they want um maybe a wiki link or yeah. if if people really care then the thing to google is uh open cv stereo and you can actually get right into the code it's quite an easy to follow uh, uh implementation of it okay cool there's some interesting questions here which is uh anyone that knows a lot about this will be screaming at their uh, podcast player but the baseline isn't long enough to do anything usefully in obviously um <laughs> so so the problem here is if there's not so the rumored iphone 7 plus is it's rumoured to have a pair of cameras, right? But they're really close together, like 10 mil apart or something. Really close together, yeah. yeah. So basically, the way you can understand this problem, it's kind of like you're looking for the difference between the images. It's called a disparity is what you calculate. If the difference is very small, is that can you spot that difference in, in between one pixel and the next pixel? Okay. So you're limited by resolution and the distance between the cameras. Yeah, precisely. And normally in computer vision for this sort of thing, you'd using probably hd cameras at best so that's what 2.3 megapixels per camera it's obviously going to be a much higher resolution camera than that on an iphone and normally the reason you don't do such high resolution is just a computational effort yeah if you've got dedicated silicon or you maybe don't calculate disparity for every single pixel because you can do clever things with your camera sensor because you control the entire hardware yeah then maybe there are some options there so it sounds like you could work at the disparity using the full resolution frame and then do all your other stuff using a scaled down frame. Possibly, but then what you'd need to, you'd be matching features at high resolution and then maybe reducing it, creating perhaps a pyramid of features, perhaps using some sort of Gaussian pyramid uh, calculation. <laughs> you, you see, this is the, yeah, the yeah. train of thought that got me yeah. to this. Now, anyone that is expert in this and listening to this will realize I'm making a lot of leaps and missing out a lot of stuff and there's a lot of it'll never work, so... Do feel free to tell me exactly how it won't work at uh, wrong on the internet at pinkoundpodcast.com. But uh, for now, I think I have thought this through a bit and it's plausible. I'll say that much. Okay. I thought this led quite nicely onto a topic of uh, VR, which I thought would be fun to talk about because it's everyone's talking about it. It's choo-choo all aboard the hype train. Yeah, definitely. Well on the hype train. Super popular right now, but it's really interesting. It's getting a lot of buzz in the tech press, but virtually no one's actually used it or knows what it's good for. Yeah, I've not, I've not used it. I think I said last time just due to cost and access to the hardware. Yeah, so I thought... Um, so we are discussing horrendously expensive Macs last time, and it'll be quite anyone listening to that or thinking, why is he moaning about cost on a Vive when he's talking about buying two terabytes of PCI Express SSD? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, one of those things is my work, and one is I just want to see what it's like. 
<laughs> yeah, but still. Anyway, so I thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about now, precisely because you haven't used it, yeah. whereas I have. So I thought we could talk about this, and then if you ever get a chance to jam your head in a decent VR headset, then uh, it'd be interesting to see what you thought it would be like versus what it's actually like. Yeah. I guess I can give a little background, and then you can just ask me what you want to know about VR, because I've tried it quite... I've tried it... A f- not a huge amount, but I've had my head inside pretty much every major headset, and I've implemented some stuff for VR. So I've got, I've got a reasonable idea what I'm talking about. I've professionally in- implemented some 3D applications and yeah. things like that. So I suppose the thing that interests me most is um, the actual level of immersion. Now, I know speaking about other podcasts is just a thing. Well, we can't avoid it in this case. I think there was an episode of perhaps Cortex a few weeks ago. Um, Mike Hurley and CGP Grey, where they talked about trying out, was it HTC hardware? Um, uh, no, they tried an Oculus. Um, oh, was it? It was at Facebook as well, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, and they were, they basically described this, what I thought initially was a bit of a melodramatic story about really getting it and having experiences like being tiny and being on top of a table and nearly falling off that table and their brain thinking, well, this is real, I'm going to fall off the table, that kind of thing. Like, is that level of immersion sort of to be expected for almost everyone, ignoring the motion sickness stuff? So, short answer, yes, it's astonishing. A kind of lo- slightly longer answer, maybe. A good uh, way to get a flavour of the immersion, if anyone's listening and thinking, like, what on earth are you on about? I want to I try some of this. The the cheapest way, I think I've said it to you before, if you get a Google, Google Cardboard headset, they're about eight quid off Amazon or something. The V2 ones are better. They've got a wider field of view. And some sort of app that lets you take spherical photos. The best one's Google Cardboard, but you need an Android device if you can lay your hands on one. Yeah, I've got I've got plenty of those, so yeah, should be fine. They also tend to have higher resolution screens and iPhones, high-end ones, which is better. Google Cardboard lets you take a sort of 360 panorama and then gives you a stereoscopic view of it. Okay. And so I mentioned before about scale, how you they can kind of fake the scale. So in VR, they get to trick you two ways because they can kind of assume that you're standing at normal person height. And they can kind of assume that you're viewing it at normal person height and your brain will just uh, join the dots. Okay. Uh, so fun thing to do is take a cardboard panorama, but take it at a weird height. So, Oh, like right down at the floor or standing yeah. on a chair or something. Yeah, precisely. So, But in a place you know well. So like the best example I can give of this is if you go into like your living room or you know somewhere you are, you are a lot. And then take a panorama with the phone just under the edge of the sofa. And then view it in the headset, and it's the most surreal thing ever because you get the sense of the sofa looming over you, but the room is familiar. So you've got like this real, um, your brain's kind of tugging you both ways, and uh, you just feel like you're a tiny mouse, and it's hilarious. Yeah. And how, mu- how much do you think the HTC Vive, the, I don't know what they call them, hand sensors, controllers, whatever, do they add to it where you sort of get into using those and it becomes part of the experience? Yeah, that's uh, that's a huge deal example of two demos i've tried so you might have seen the demo with the vive where you're shooting bows and arrows against a lot of folk that are attacking this castle that you've got to defend okay um for a sort of comparison there's crytex the climb thing which is a oculus demo where you're rock climbing right and i played the demo in the rift with a xbox pad and i played the other one with the vive controllers um the notable thing was especially when they're giving the demo the the guy from crytek who was giving the demo he has to be standing there telling you what to do. Oh, you need to press this, then you press that. And he was giving a lot of instruction to everyone that was doing it. Whereas uh, giving the HTC demo, 
he would hand you the controllers in front of your face so you could see them, you can grab them with your hands, and then your brain kind of just is instantly like, oh, these are my hands now. And then he just says, pick up the bow and arrow. And you just do it. You don't have to think. You're not... It's just like an instinctive thing. Like, there is a thing here that I can pick up. Yeah, you just reach for it, you squeeze the triggers, and it, you're suddenly you're holding it, and no one I saw doing it had to be told, oh, you grab the arrow and pull back the string. You, yeah. you just do it. That knowledge of how the world works that is baked into you before you even go in HR, that's what... In VR, that's that's the thing that yeah, gives HR you the is a different thing. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I don't want any VR simulation of HR processes. <laughs> That'd be worst thing ever. So it, it does make a big difference, in short. Okay. E3, uh, Bethesda said they were going to have Fallout 4 for the HTC Vive coming next year, 2017. Yeah. And a few press got to try it out and said it was good, but do you think it's going to be as good as these demos and or do you think they're going to have to do significant work to get that level of immersion? I think people liked it because it was Fallout and you can walk around in Fallout and that yeah. is awesome. But the problem they have is you can only walk as long as the tether and everyone knows Fallout is all about walking 100 kilometers across the wasteland. Yeah, it's and pra- practically a walking simulator, which if you're in VR and you've only got a small room, isn't going to work that great. Yeah, so the way they got around this was they let you uh, point at a point. Pl- you could walk around a little bit and then you could point and teleport. Oh, so it becomes a bit like the... Um, Google Street View. Yeah, because the problem is you need to do the teleportation because it turns out the most super nauseating thing in VR is moving the camera when you're not controlling it. Okay. Any sort of camera motion that isn't just your head moving as well is very odd. Hmm. And it, you can kind of get away with it. So um, I've forgotten the name of it. The, what's the Gear VR game that us two who made Monument Valley made? Um, oh, I don't know. Maybe I can just edit myself in saying the name here and it'll sound great. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. If not, um, it'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so the way they do it is you look at these these uh, glowing balls hanging in the air. They kind of pulse a bit, then drop to the floor, and then the camera moves towards that point. And that's quite a clever way because that ensures that the camera motion is only translation along the line that you're looking. Okay. And that's the most important thing, because that's about the only form of motion that you can have happening in VR that isn't horrendous. Yeah. Uh, So I did some experiments on a colleague of mine when we were producing some VR stuff, and it was a bit of a... He was kind of challenging me to make him feel ill, so I was trying to see what was worse. (laughs) And uh, if you translate the viewpoint, so uh, left to right, so if if you move the camera sideways and you're not actually moving sideways that makes the person in the vr headset try and fall over the other way ah okay <laughs> so it's, it's quite fun so fallout it's going to be first person as opposed to fallout traditional third person view would it be possible to do the third person and have like a smooth path for the camera where somehow you get a sort of experience yeah so that stuff's pretty cool and quite interesting because then it's like the most popular vr ar version of minecraft they do it like that because it's like a, the tabletop game style thing. You're looking yeah. at that's what it's like. You're looking at a tabletop game in a virtual world, and I think that's actually a really compelling way to experience VR. So that might even be a solution to the translation walking problem as well, because you could. Yeah, the board just walks along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You kind of on first thing you think, well, what's the point of that? Why don't I just look at a screen if I want to see a third party view of something? You know, the whole point of VR is immersion, but then. It's effectively immersing you in this environment with like this most wonderful board game like experience thing in front of you, and things can happen in it, and things can reach out of it and envelop you. Like, I mean, have you seen the AMD Solace demo? I have not. No. So, 
again, something to find for the show notes. So the Solace is uh, AMD made a head-mounted VR set completely untethered. They put a 35-watt AMD APU in the headset, and they've got stereo cameras in there to do the inside-out tracking, as I mentioned earlier. And it's the Jack and the Beanstalk demo. You need to... We need to look this up, but uh, they basically the demo starts and the guy is just sitting in an office, and then you know the giant busts through the roof and the ceiling comes crashing down, and he's lifted from the real world out of that into a virtual world. It's really okay. quite, it's quite impressive. Apart from my only hesitation about that, no matter how many videos you watch of VR, it is absolutely nothing like using a VR headset. Nothing at all. <laughs> um, so many things are so different. You don't get the immersion. Yeah, and. The resolution thing is so if you if you take a like a two K display and stretch it across your field of view like a Vive or a Rift, you can still just about see the gaps in the pixels between the pixels. So you get this. It's not. It's a weird thing. It's not like looking like a low res two D display. Yeah. It's not blocky. It's just. It's not as sharp as it should be. So is resolution generally a problem for VR? Like, is more resolution better? The problem with resolution is bandwidth and how you stream all that resolution because uh, yeah, at the moment we're about 2K. Uh, AMD in their labs have got 4K per eye, 120 hertz displays. Um, okay. You can only imagine the GPU per- power required to drive that. I think like to sort of provide a full field of view human eye resolution coverage, I think it's something like 15 4K displays per eye sort of resolution. Okay, um, so that's quite a lot, yeah. To get a like a really good experience, realistically, I think it's looking at something like eight K per eye. Okay. So, yeah, we need more resolution. It's kind of most apparent on text, in the same way that Retina displays are nicest for text. Yeah. So it makes that's normally where games fall down in VR. They break the illusion when they try and do user interface. Mm. That's quite that's quite amusing though. Um, if you read up about things like lucid dreaming, one of the ways people break out of the dream and can control the dream is they start to look at text or clocks or something, and the text just doesn't read read right. So maybe we'll get that in VR for a while, and you know that'll break the illusion so that we'll be safe from safe from uh, Skynet or whatever the whatever the aliens were in the Matrix. Yeah, it's interesting because nobody knows how to do it. So I was at VR World Congress and. There were lots of talks about people discussing about these VR experiences they'd made. The The main thing that came across was everybody's doing it differently. No one has any idea what to do. And everyone's just trying stuff and seeing what sticks. Yeah. And I think it will change as well when more people have VR and there'll be a shorthand that people understand. And, you know, think like maybe if the kind of glowing balls that you look at and you teleport becomes standard, everyone will just know that's what those are and things like that. Yeah, it become a sort of a sort of meme within the VR space. Yeah, the reason I was kind of thinking it might be interesting to lead on to our next topic, talking a bit about video stuff, is about half the stuff you see in VR at the moment is looking at streaming spherical video, either in stereo VR or or otherwise. I mean, Facebook are massively into this. Uh, everyone's no doubt seen uh, the three hundred and sixty panoramas in their in their feed by now. Uh, Facebook published the specs for a camera to record three hundred and sixty degree spherical stereo which is really hard to do yeah i see youtube have had some stuff like that as well which has seen some innovative uses from even the sort of piracy community where they they had a movie inside the 3d space of a youtube 3d panoramic video um so it wouldn't be picked up by the youtube content id yeah that was quite funny i saw that yeah if you, if you want to stream 
even 2k per eye and 360 degrees that's a lot of um that's a lot of resolution you're streaming like 4k or 8k frames for streaming the video the people are looking at they pack it into a single frame and then you unpack it at either end you sort of chop up the bits of the sphere because you don't need a lot of resolution above because no one looks straight up in vr because it's uncomfortable and you don't need a lot of straight down because once everyone's checked to see if their feet exist they don't really look down after that yeah obviously super demanding on bandwidth especially if you start saying well i want at least 60 hertz maybe i want 90 hertz maybe i want 120 uh, 4k frames and suddenly it's audio the bandwidth yeah and this kind of thinking back to what we're talking about uh low level apis i remember you talking about all the video apis that the new um, video codec nonsense that uh, i say nonsense i shouldn't be so disparaging <laughs> it's nonsense yeah day to day i see it every day and it, it's nonsense yeah. at wwc actually that's what i'm interested in i want you to tell me why it's not nonsense all this new video stuff that got introduced at wwdc i mean when you're talking about the the, the streaming vr that's all very much real time video you know that that needs to be like super quick i think john carmack has said about the oculus they're looking at like less than 100 milliseconds to get it to your eyes um, oh i have to yeah uh, if not better I mean, yeah that's... yeah i think that's the minimum for actually fooling you into thinking it's real time and then my day-to-day is actually doing video on demand where we pre-encode the video but in between that there's this sort of space of live video and by that i mean things like tv broadcasts sports events um like online gaming, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there, people want lots of resolution. People like to watch, say, a football game in high resolution, be able to see the ball on their huge 4K TV, that sort of thing. And that takes a lot of bandwidth, and encoding it's also very difficult as well. My preferred method for encoding video-on-demand stuff is usually just FFmpeg with uh, X264 encoder, which encodes H264. But coming soon for... 4K is a set of codecs called HVEC. Well, you say coming soon. It's on pretty much every modern SOC in the mobile space, certainly. Yeah, it's just getting the software support for it there as well as the difficult thing. So this is part of... It's implemented as H.265 or also uh, Google's VP9 codec implements parts of it as well. Um, We won't discuss the sort of... the patent side of that, the legal side of all that. It's super complex um, and difficult to keep up with on its own but basically this is it's a method of better encoding video and we're already starting to see hardware support as you see in phones we've got support for mostly decoding it some phones will encode it 4k encode is is a big deal in phones because everyone went so what when the iphone 6s brought 4k video to the camera yeah but do you know what the big deal about the 4k on the iphone is it's you can record it for more than a minute at the time without your mobile overheating and stopping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, what hadn't really happened until then. So on the iPhone, they're using H.264, and they're, they're obviously they've got encoders in silicon on the chip, which brings us back to our original topic. To- yeah, it, it just occurs that if you do want to send a video where you've recorded more than a minute of a half on your Android phone of you telling me exactly how wrong I am about that statement, um, just send, send us a, a YouTube link. Don't uh, fill up our inbox. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just so, thought I'd say that in case we get a video. So the so at the other end of this, there's a sort of industrial scale version of this. So there's your Facebook and YouTube and Twitch and a whole bunch of other platforms that do this live content. I guess people at the BBC who do live as well, and they want to encode in real time. And just now your only real option is to have big beefy machines running 
X264 setup if you're doing H264 or sometimes you can have some NVIDIA video cards in there and use some of their hardware. Intel do have on their consumer chips um, some hardware. Quick sec, they're bringing it to Xeons now, aren't they? They've recently announced um, the E3 1500 V5 series, which is a special series. And it's it has specific hardware for encoding H.265, so HVEC. And they can do multiple streams at once. I don't have the numbers to hand right here. They were talking like, I think it was six streams at the same time, 4K, H.265, sorry, which to me just seems utterly mad, but it's implementing it in silicon. I was going to say, I guess the big question about all this is, why is this interesting as an end user? So I think for consumers, the biggest thing they're going to notice is the video is going to take up much less space on their devices. HVEC has quite a storage, you know, storage usage advantage over previous codecs, you know. Okay, but I, I kind of, the cynic in me wonders if all the, the development effort into the, that's going into this, is it is it for me as a user or is it for everyone with their not needing such enormous data storage at the server end? And Yeah, there, I mean, there's definitely a bit of that as well. It's about, I mean, having the specific hardware, specific servers that do video, or specific CPUs that do video encoding, is that's a saving for people like Facebook. I mean, it's obvious that it's... Facebook and YouTube that have, or Google that have asked for this sort of hardware from Intel because the chips are only available in a, I think it's ball grid array form factor. There's no socketed CPU. You can't drop this. You can't just buy a CPU and drop it in a regular server. You've got to buy the whole board with the, the CPU already on it. So they're, th- they're thinking about putting that in their open compute rack, rack setups. I'm sure if Facebook are doing it, we're going to hear about it soon enough when they publish the details. But it's, it's people doing a lot of video, doing it at massive scale. They make a saving on hardware. I guess if you could argue that's trickled into the consumer. But Well, if I'm, st- if I'm streaming over uh, some sort of a 3G connection, that's quite slow. Yeah, so you're going to, for, for given, given bandwidth, you're going to get better quality. For, so for people who are on 3G connections, or even worse, you know, you've got the, the horror. Hardware, you've got the hardware at both ends, you know, you're going to get a better quality video stream. Well, I say the horror, but I mean, it is, is it was amazing. Like, we were looking into the uh, the Snapdragon specs the other day. It's amazing how low end they've gotten with the, the support for these new codecs. And, you know, the 6 series and even, I think, some of the 4 series Snapdragons have the hardware support for it. Yeah, so I think these... Developments like this, like HVEC, are actually more useful when you go into developing markets where they are consuming a lot of video, but it's very low resolution. And just increasing that a little bit will give people a, a far higher quality experience. I mean, from my like um, professional point of view, it's going to, I'm going to pay less for storage costs, less for bandwidth costs, but at the same time, we're going to give people a better experience. And that's what people care about. They care about their video not stuttering, uh, not buffering and it, it looks good so yeah. it, it kind of helps with that it still amazes me how how far videos come like i i assume in i don't know five years time ten years time i don't know how long we'll look back on what video is like now and think oh we were just streaming our 1080p thinking it was great like animals you know it's not that long ago that i remember the first time i ever saw moving pictures on the internet you know it's yeah, I think I think I've got I've still got like a folder with some of the earliest videos I saw on the internet where you know it took so long to for them to appear you just downloaded them before you watched them locally on the machine. Uh, Three hundred by two hundred pixels. Sort of. Oh yeah, sometimes even smaller, like postage stamps on a modern display, and it, it was the most magical thing ever. Yeah. Do you remember what the first thing you ever saw? What the first moving picture on the internet you saw was? 
I'm not sure. The first thing I can really remember loving is the... And it, this I, this is actually not that modern. I think it might even be like 2004, 2005. I need to look at it. Is the Monty Python done in Lego? Okay, yeah, yeah. The Camelot Dance or whatever it's called. And that's one of the first things I sort of remember. I was talking about it with someone the other day and it was definitely... A, and I do have it in a directory somewhere. It is a... It is something I saved, so it must have been when the internet connection was slow enough to not be able to just go to YouTube and watch it again. Must have been about 96, 97, and it was footage, I say footage, it was about 100 by 100 pixels of a, <laughs> a fighter plane taking off at an air show in the States. And this was this was back in the uh, Netscape days when you'd have image loading on web pages turned off by default. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know what it was, it was at a university I saw it and. Yeah, I remember that just being incredible. And then this was, you know, Pentium MMX. You can now get FMV video in games and all this. I remember that all being a big deal. Yeah, I mean, you were saying about, like, how things advance. I mean, if you you were asking what consumer benefit there is to these, if you, if you try and encode any useful resolution in MPEG-2, which is what DVDs use, like try and encode 1080 and then send it over a line, you'd be amazed at how much bandwidth it uses compared to the current or just previous generation of codecs. Like, things do move on more than you think, and it's often later in the cycle of a codec that we actually start to see its full advantages. Okay, so thanks for listening to Pincount. Uh, we're putting the show notes online at pincountpodcast.com. Uh, if you want to get us on Twitter, I'm at the underscore accidental, and Doug is at Douglas F. Shearer. The show's got a Twitter account too, that's at pincountpodcast. We'd love to get your feedback. Tweet us and use the hashtag askpincount. For longer feedback, or if you just can't explain how wrong we got something without reference to the API documentation and CAD drawings, email wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. We'll see you next week. I, w- I wonder if you can make a uh, hello that wakes up. Oh, wait, my phone. Hang on. I should turn off my iPhone before I say hello. Sir. See, I've got I've got iOS ten on my phone, and it does this. There's a weird bug in it where if you um, have haste turned on, uh, uh, oh, sh- I just set it off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if this you is ha- where we talk about haste. <laughs> yeah. If you if you have the Apple automated assistant where you don't have to press the button switched on, it interferes with the playback of things like podcasts, and the advice has been to turn haste. <laughs> It's just randomly it'll pause your podcast or your music player or whatever's going on because it thinks it's maybe heard he said and then it's like, oh no I better deal with that okay but anyway yeah I wonder I wonder if you can play a either too high for a human to hear that will trigger the phone or too low yeah I, I remember making this joke before it would be quite interesting to find out perhaps yeah. you should experiment with that yeah maybe I'll try it out sometime but then who who will ever know if I put it in the podcast they'll never know because you won't be able to hear it Yeah, we should listen to my headphones.